Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. It's, there's nothing worse than, like, if another guy or a couple guys, like, kick your butt, but then your brain is spinning, too. You're like, well, How? wait, did they? Or what am I learn? What am I trying to learn from this? But with the competitions, this sounds really weird, but... Uh, my best competitions are the ones where, where some French guy or Czech guy just kicks my ass. Mm-hmm. That's like my favorite type of competition because I my brain starts spinning and going, what did he do or she do, you know? And uh, and it, it it's like that type of learning is great. And uh, the funny part too is after these competitions are over, uh, if they speak English, most of these people don't speak English on the, on the world uh, circuit. Um, a lot of them do, I guess. They'll just give you your flies and go. Here's what I did. Hmm. You know, I fished. I fished blobs underneath the tree tree limbs. And I'm like, really? Oh my god! I never would have thought of that. That's awesome. Wow. And so you walk away going, you know, that was the best part of my tournament was realizing that there's that that the art form just keeps moving. Hi there, I'm Pete Erickson, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey everybody. We've got an awesome guest for you today. I'm going to catch up with one of my old friends. Pete Erickson and I happened to get to Jackson, Wyoming in the early 90s. I was there a little bit before him, and then he showed up just a little bit after. He worked in the Orvis shop with my wife, Cynthia, and uh, we were roommates at one point. And um, Pete has had an amazing career. 
Uh, he won the ESPN Great Outdoor Games. He moved on to be on Team USA, all the while being a professional fishing guide in the Rocky Mountains, mostly on the South Fork of the Snake River. He ends up moving over to Boise, guiding on some other water over there, Silver Creek and South Fork. And he's just had a great career. He's got great perspective. And we're going to talk about this magic time in Jackson, Wyoming, which spawned the careers of myself and Pete and Matson Rogers and Carter Andrews and um, so many others. I mean, man, I, I actually made a list of all of these people. Uh, Matson Rogers, Fletcher White, Lorianne Murphy, Kim Keeley, Carter Andrews, Bucky Buckenroth, Jeff Courier, Paul Brune, Tom Montgomery, Bill Happersett, Oliver White, Joe Bressler, Doug Gibson, Ed Emery, so many more. And I probably left out tons and tons of other people that um, were in and around Jackson and in and around the South Fork of the Snake River at that time. And um, just a just a really cool time. And many of those people are still in the fishing business, in the fly fishing business, or in the television fishing business. And um, it's just cool. So Pete and I have a uh, recollection of why that might have happened and what was so special about that time, which is kind of interesting. But then we go on to the Team USA and the European nymphing, which is a technique kind of brought back from these international competitions. I had a great time talking with Pete. I think you're going to enjoy this. Um, if you do, you can follow Pete. Pete Erickson Fly Fishing on Instagram. We'll have all of this in the show notes, but he's a good follow and you can actually go fishing with him in the summertime. He'd be a great person to uh, be a guide. If you could get any days with him, I'd definitely suggest doing it soon. Uh, really good to connect with my old friend, Pete Erickson. Here we go. Pete Erickson, man, what's going on? Oh, so good to see you and hear your voice. I know. We hung out. It really has been. It really has been. Um, you know, I've done a, a number of podcasts with with people from the Jackson era, um, and it is amazing what what happened from that little short time that we were together out there, six or seven years, and um, and how many of the people that we hung out with. Um, stayed in the fishing industry and some did extremely, extremely well. Um, how did you get to Jackson? Uh, I got to Jackson. I was working for Microsoft and I was interviewing for a new job. I was a young, young kid out of the university of Oregon, living in Redmond, Seattle area. And I, uh, um, my boss said, why not, before you start your new job, uh, why don't you go take a couple months somewhere and relax? And it was wintertime, so I went to ski in Jackson Hole because I'd been there before in college. And, geez, one thing led to another, and the guys I skied with were saying, you can't leave this area before you at least spend one spring fishing here. Because <laughs> I, you know, because I said, I've been fishing my whole life in Seattle, you know, fly fishing. And uh, uh, sure enough, I ended up calling my boss and saying, I'm not coming back. <laughs> and then, and then... Basically, that was about the time where I bumped into you guys. You know, I worked at the Orva shop and and met Joe. So that that was a that was a cool time because most of the people that that got out there and stayed out there. Well, I don't know. There were there was like a magnet of the guide school, and you kind of entered that that uh, group slightly different coming through the Orvis store. And the Orvis store opened probably in what nineteen. 90 maybe that was probably my first yeah. year out there 
Yeah, Dave Fallon was yeah. my boss. Dave Fallon. <laughs> Wonder what he's doing today. Um, Bill Ski and those guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and then Cynthia was working in the shop with you. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 probably how I got connected with uh, all sorts of fishing trips and and uh, roommate situations with you guys. You know, <laughs> Cynthia. Had to be nice to the gal that booked the trips, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. It was uh, that was that was such a cool time. Um, you know, I went to the guide school, and then out, and Fletcher went to the guide school, and then yep. um, the year later, Mats and Rogers went to the guide school, and so many other people. Jeff Klausman, um, so many other people went through that guide school, and it just turned out to be like the greatest idea for a for for talent recruitment ever probably. But at the same time, you know, you had across town, you had like the Jack Dennis crowd, you had Carter Andrews and Jeff Courier. And Mm -hmm. and I jotted down some names. We had Paul Brune and Tom Montgomery, Bill Happersett, Oliver White. Um, Doug Gibson was on the South Fork at the time. Ed Emery was on the South Fork at the time. Dirk over there at the South Fork Lodge. Um, Bucky Buckenroth. Gary Beebe, Ann Murphy, Kim Keeley. I mean, all of these people, that's a, like a, that's like a who's who it's amazing. Really. It, it's really a weird deal because, um, you know, on, on OLN and, and, uh, uh, ESPN, if you flipped it on, it was weird for five to 10 years. I knew everybody personally <laughs> that was on every show. Like, like I, I had spent time in a tent with them on an overnight camp. It was, it was really just strange. Like, huh? How's this all emanating from this one little area? What do you um, think it was? What 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 was special about that time or that place? I think the area attracted us, and also that was the only guide school. Right, <laughs> you're right. It was the it was an original idea that that was the only thing, and we were all looking for that. And it just it was kind of a a weird thing. We kind of almost knew it while it was happening too, in the middle of it, because we would see each other all on the river, and we would fish together. I mean, you and I, do you remember going out fishing on snowy days? With oh, the, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you, cut that, you cut that huge, like, eight-pound brown down <laughs> on the South Fork. That was such a great day. <laughs> that was when we were playing around with the with the giant streamers, and at the time, Carter was working on the double bunny, and I was working on the Roland's Rabbit, and his, his, Rabbit. his proved to be way easier to throw and smaller and had a cooler <laughs> name. Um, so it, it won out. Uh, nobody wanted to throw my creation, which was a, a, a about a twelve inch cross cut rabbit with a with a trailer hook, and and it was hard to throw, and it was miserable, oh really. But it, it was a white fish. Yeah, it did work a little bit. Um, hey, it caught that giant fish that day. Yeah. In a snowstorm. That was that was but, awesome. There were yeah. there were so many good memories from that time, and and, and there were so many um, things. And I've talked about it before even especially with my kids who have um, thought about guiding and thought about getting into the the fishing business. And it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, when I did, there was a really special thing going on and there were, there were technology advances of the Gore-Tex wader of rods were getting better and easier to throw fly lines were getting better. Everything was getting better and making it uh, more conducive to, um, it was a little more inviting for people to get into the Rocky mountains were getting kind of uh, a lot lot of tourism. And then you had the movie and all of those things all combined into this perfect storm of that, that I really rode for the next, 
you know, 15 years of my career because I would get all of these new anglers and I wasn't getting the anglers that Bill Haberset was getting, but I was getting all of these new anglers that had never really fished before. I would teach them how to fish. We would fish together for four or five years, trout fishing on the South Fork. And then I would say, mm-hmm. once I got started in, in the Keys, I would say, hey, you should really try saltwater fishing. And that whole group of anglers, you know, was ready for this transition. They were like, okay, yeah, let's, let's see what that's about. So when I went down to the Keys, I was able to have a fairly full book. And that was very rare, very, very strange and very rare. And, um, I don't know that I could repeat that had I come a few years earlier or maybe even a few years later, I don't know that that would have happened. You know what I mean? It's like, it was a really special time for, for so many reasons. Totally true. Yeah. And, um, same with me. Um, I think you're going to ask me a few questions about competitions and, you know, my only competition was the one fly every year because I got a free rod and a shirt. And, uh, and, but it, it kind of was a springboard that whole, all those people in that area, um, you know, I was able to, to do well in the fly fishing industry, rod design and, and, you know, working with companies and product design and, and, uh, also getting to travel so much with the competition stuff. So I think what you're talking about was like kind of a springboard in that area. And, we also knew everybody, you know, like everybody yeah. in the industry, it, it, we would have an overnight and I'd be like, Hey Tom, what do you got today? I'm, I'm like, I got Charles Jardine in his group, you know? And it'd just be like, really down at camp. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got Lee Perkins today, you know? And, and wow. it's just like, yeah. here we are at camp, you know, with all these luminaries, you know, the people that, that kind of ran the, the, the biz basically. And we were their guides. That's yeah. really cool. You learned so much in the boat from those people. So much. I mean, Charles Jardine coming in from from uh, England and really showing us like all the stuff that they were doing over there. And, you know, yeah. in some ways they were way ahead, some ways they were way behind. And and then you you kind of pick, pick up a little pieces of, of what he's showing you and then, then apply them on the river. And it was the same kind of deal like with, mm-hmm. with, with all of those guys. But, you know, you just, I guess it, I guess the moral of the story is if you just, you know, keep your eyes open and your mouth shut. You can learn a lot. And appreciate your time period. Like appreciate it. Right. The young, all the young people in the industry right now that they have their own time period happening and they just need to keep their eyes open and and appreciate it because it's, it's happening wherever they are. Well, it is. And the, the innovations are happening, whether it's in saltwater or in freshwater, like permit fishing, you know, when, when I first got to Key West, the, the permit fishing was, was just, getting started. Dell Brown and Steve Huff were inventing the sport and, uh, guys like Marshall Cutchin and, and so many others were, were, you know, making these big advancements and it's the same thing's happening today. I mean, it really, the advancements are even more so today as the sport has matured and everything. And it's like the good old days are, are right now, like for, for wherever you are and you do have to appreciate that and, and embrace it. And it's, it's, uh, cool times now as it is cool times, um, you know, in the past, but like you've seen this, this huge, um, technological innovation and, and, uh, uh, technique innovation with, with Euro nymphing. And that's one of the things that I want to talk to you about. And I, but to get there, you, um, started with some competitions and I didn't actually know this, but I read this morning in your bio that you won the great outdoor games. The year after you were there. Is that right? So 2002? Yeah. Is that yeah, when it I was? was? There 2000, 
two, I think, or something okay. like that. Yeah. Because I've yeah, got these two posters it. hanging right here that I was looking at and uh, I had everyone sign them. Um, and I've got 2000, which is the year that I won. And then I went back in 2001 and didn't win. And I was like, I was looking at all the names. I was like, was Pete there that year? Because shortly thereafter, it went to um, Madison, Reno. Wisconsin or Reno. Yeah, Madison and then Reno. Right. I think Reno was first. Yeah. Do you right. see the, do you see the outdoor games poster behind me? I, is that it right there behind you? Yeah. yeah it's signed by uh, Lorianne uh carter uh you know just everyone that was there that's so cool carter, carter even signed it go big or go home <laughs> <laughs> well that's but what yeah, that that's was, what everybody did yeah i i can't remember everybody that was there but they were there were a lot of people that i was really excited to meet it's super that. cool that you have that poster because the two years that i did it they gave us all there were like these stacks of posters laying around that they couldn't hang up and they're like you can take as many as you want and i took two and i thought i had enough foresight to think man i should get people to sign this and i got them to sign it before i won which was good because i'm not sure that a couple of them might have signed it afterwards they they (laughs) you know what i mean it was like the day before i got everybody to sign it and then uh in 2001 i got them i thought that's cool too and it wasn't it must have been 20 20 years before i had them framed and uh, and I th- they were just kind of sitting in my in my tackle room, all all yeah. all in a you know uh, in a rod case really. And I opened this right. rod case to look what was in there. And I was like, oh, these posters, huh? I forgot all about those. And then Cynthia said, oh, we should get those framed. So I did. So, luckily, I luckily I did. Um, but you thought? Yeah, no, that's that was my idea too. I did it. You know, actually, Courier was spending the night. He was doing a show in Boise, and he was like this is a good idea getting some of these framed. And so I thought about the other ones and, and got them framed, you know, Oh, remember Chuck Farnett? Yeah. I think he won it the year you were there. He did. And uh, he was in it with me and he signed it. And it just, it was, it's kind of cool because you look back on those times. Like I even have the, the gold medal thingy here in, in this room, this office has a lot of my fishing crap in it. And uh, you know, those the, the, the ESPN was so like kind of awesome. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. It was was. over the top, you know, they flew us out there and they paid for everything. And it was even professional. I I got a big check for winning that thing. Yeah. I think that must've started after I won because I don't remember getting a big check. Um, But I do remember that it was, it was marketed as the next big thing. And they thought this would be like, you know, you got the Olympics every two years and then maybe we could squeeze this in, in the other years. And, And this would be kind of another outdoor olympics kind of x games kind of thing yeah. didn't yeah. didn't didn't quite make it but um it was cool it was really cool it made it, made it quite a few years and we were lucky enough to to benefit from all of it for sure wow. that was the next question how do you think that that uh, you know being able to first of all participate in that and then to mm-hmm. win it how did that affect your your career um from then on yeah, I would say, I mean, you knew me as a guide. I was at that point, I was doing pretty well, um, for, for wrestler and, and, uh, you know, like one of the lead guides and, and, uh, but nothing on the, you know, outside of the Jackson situation, mm-hmm. except for, you know, uh, maybe clack of craft pro staffs and things, things like that, you know, but, um, yeah, as soon as I wanted, it was kind of like a monsoon. I remember the first part was, was, uh, Oh geez, whoever the ESPN people were that were in charge were like, Hey, you got to make yourself available for autographs tomorrow. I'm like, 
who wants my stupid signature? <laughs> you know, except for the waitress at the at the diner. She wants me to sign my bill. Um, yeah, and it was just kind of one of those weird things. And there was a whole line of people, and and uh, it just yeah, it changed a bunch of things because it it really uh, opened up um, a lot of the industry as far as um, me being able to meet people and do different things like work, work for, which I'll talk about later, but work for, as a rod designer for Ray Jeff and uh, you know, all, all that stuff. But uh, you know, the origin of, of how I actually got into that um, it wasn't because I think Fletcher and you were both in the outdoor games, weren't yeah. you? Yep. The two of you guys and mm-hmm. Lorianne maybe. maybe um, what I didn't even watch it. I didn't even know about it. And, mm-hmm. and uh which I should have because of, you know, any type of fly fishing that's being shown to millions of people is kind of a cool thing. So, um, I, uh, the next year Fletcher said, uh, Hey, you're one of my lead guides. I need you to do this, um, ESPN, uh, fly fishing challenge. It's like, it's filmed over a week period in Montana on the spring creeks in Depew's. Yeah. And, uh, um, I was kind of like, ah, I don't really, I don't like competitions. Like I'm not <laughs> into it. And I, I got, and I loved all the people involved with the one fly, but at some point I had a guy dive out of my boat to save his fly, an old guy. And wow. it freaked me out. You know, I was like, okay, I don't like, I don't like competitive juices going and mixing with fly fishing. It just, you know, I had almost saved the guy and, you know, I was like, this is not, cool. And I mean, I understood that it's a fundraiser tournament and it, it, you know, it does a lot of good, but, but I, I just was kind of soured on it. So I said, nah, I don't want to do that. And you know, Fletch was my boss. So he was like, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're going. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to, you know, uh, Mike Dawes, I met him that morning and he, we jumped in the truck together and drove all the way up and, and, uh, it was kind of cool because a lot of, you know, uh, John Barr and and there's a lot of people there from the industry that I had looked up to and and uh um geez who all was there Bob Jacklin was there just a lot of people that I, that I looked at and they were all on these teams you know like team Sims team Sage team and uh so I was like well you know no matter how this thing goes at least I'm meeting all these cool people and and maybe I can learn something up here um which ended up being the main reason that I have done competitive fly fishing was relationships and learning and, and, uh, you know, the, and travel and stuff like that. But, um, so we got up there and, it, you know, I was with, uh, uh, Jim Hickey and, and Whitney McDowell and, and, uh, we went up there and we were just supposed to go up there and get exposure for, uh, Worldcast, which was the new name. And, and, uh, and, and it was, it was a reality show is what it was it took place over a week. And, uh, I don't know how we did it, but we ended up winning. I'm still not sure how we beat team Sims. Those guys were guiding on that water the week before. Um, but, uh, we ended up winning and we got an invite to the outdoor games. And at that point I was now kind of excited because there was a lot of camaraderie. Everyone was nice to each other. Um, you know, it was like John Riggins was the, was the host, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, it it just, I was like, Oh, okay, this is a fun experience. Okay. I'm I'm not poo-pooing this anymore. I wonder what the outdoor games are going to be like. Um, and then they flew us out there and we rented a house and, and, uh, um, it was, it was a great fun experience. As you know, yeah. uh, the, one of the biggest things was I start, I hung out with the pro bass anglers. Yeah. Peter, Peter T and all the, all these guys were there and, uh, that was their lifestyle. And I was like, this is, you guys have a cool life. You know, like this is you, what you guys are doing. I mean, obviously they're worth 
tons of money and you know uh but they were like no no, this is what we do we travel and we compete they had all their trucks there with two bass boats in it and we hung out with them and it kind of changed my opinion of some of the some of the stuff i started seeing it more like like there's competitive skiing and then there's free skiing you know Mm -hmm. there's people play golf on the weekends but there's there's competitive golf too i started seeing that oh there's a little different thing and you can i can still have my solitude on silver creek or on the ranch um on my own i don't have to to deal with this stuff, but this is kind of a different world. And I really don't know what I'm doing and I can learn a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and everybody that I've come in contact with has been really cool and really nice. You know, you'd think that it would be people are, you know, competitive and, and they're, they're not friendly or whatever. It wasn't that way at all. It was the competitions have always seemed kind of like a secondary deal to building relationships and learning, learning about fishing. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, I, uh, I had a similar kind of deal with the, with the competitions of not knowing whether I would like it or not. And then getting in my first one and loving it. Like so, so much of what you just described was, were the same feelings that I had, but they also conjured up some feelings of like, um, being a high school athlete. And then there Mm -hmm. was this, then there was like this game day kind of feeling like, Whoa, this is a little different than going out there. And, um, then there was this game day kind of feeling some, you know, and then there was preparation and Mm -hmm. having this event on your calendar and then preparing for it. And then, you know, that. I loved all of that. I loved that. But what I loved more than anything was that um, in all the different types of tournaments, whether that was the, in, in, you know, the freshwater fly fishing stuff. Didn't you do a redfish tournament? Yeah. Thing? Yeah. The okay. redfish tournaments and then tons of them in, um, in the Florida Keys. There was a whole tournament scene there. They were all charity tournaments and they were cool because at the time it was in the, the heyday of the Redbone tournament. They were trying to cure cystic fibrosis. It was a wonderful uh, deal. The first time I went to one of those tournaments, I almost broke down in tears because of the work that they were doing. And they were making real progress on this, this terrible disease that, that the, the daughter of the, of Gary Ellis had this. And so there was like a face to it and there was, and you knew this little girl and, and it was just amazing. And people were raising tons of money and companies were getting behind it and we, they were making real progress. Right. And then there would be like a hundred boats in one of these things. And there would be a scoreboard, a huge scoreboard. I mean, as 
there was no digital, there was no internet, there was no no TVs or anything like wow. that. It was a huge <laughs> scoreboard with magic marker, everyone's name on there, what you did on wow. day one, what you did on day two, how many points you had, and I used tournament. to just yeah yeah, and yeah. I would get up there and I would just stare at this board. And look at it and look at all these guides that I had so much respect for and, and followed all. And I'm like, wow, they didn't catch anything. And they didn't catch anything. And this guy caught a bunch. And then, you know, you yeah. could just, you could just kind of see and you're like, oh, and I saw that guy. I saw him. He was going west and everybody else was going east and he caught all the fish. And so it just like, it, it, it was like turbocharged learning, turbocharged. Yeah. And, totally. and there was, and it was a hundred percent, you knew it was a hundred percent accurate. Like if somebody came in with a score, there were pictures to prove it. You know, this, yeah. it was like a hundred percent. It wasn't doc talk. Somebody didn't say, Oh, well we caught 30, you know, and the biggest one was like 24 inches and nobody's right. there to say anything else. Right. So you don't know like what, yeah, if yeah, that yeah. was real or not, or, right. you know, and, and so it was like turbocharged learning. There was no bullshit. There was no you know, smoke and mirrors or anything like that. It was like, they're the scores. And you saw these people do all this. And then it's like, wow, some people would put up scores that were so amazing that as a guide, you know, that you you're learning, like there's nothing worse than like, if another guide or a couple guides, like kick your butt, but then your brain is spinning too. You're like, well, wait, did they, or what am I learning? What am I trying to learn from this? But with the competitions, this sounds really weird, but uh, my best competitions are the ones where, where some French guy or Czech guy just kicks my ass. Mm-hmm. That's like my favorite type of competition because I, my brain starts spinning and going, what did he do or she do, you know? And, uh, and it, it, it's like that type of learning is great. And uh, the funny part too, is after these competitions are over, uh, if they speak English, most of these people don't speak English on the, on the world uh, circuit. Um, a lot of them do, I guess they'll just give you your flies and go, here's what I did. Hmm. You know, I fished, I fished blobs underneath the tree, tree limbs. And I'm like, really? Oh my God. I never would have thought of that. That's awesome. Wow. And so you walk away going, you know, that was the best part of my tournament was realizing that there's the, that the art form just keeps moving, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, and so let's, that's my favorite part of competition. Let's, let's talk about that particular type of competition. To, so to bring the listeners up to speed, Mm-hmm. You um, went from the great outdoor games and then somehow you managed to um, end up on Team USA, which is a a team. And I, I know very little about it. I told you this before. I never this was where my career deviated into saltwater and I never right. I didn't go down this road. I knew this road existed and Carter was kind of dabbling in this world and mm-hmm. I was interested in doing it. But I just kind of said, you know what, I got to go all in down here. And so this this is where our paths split uh, yep. right here. And you you and I both won the great outdoor games. I chose to go in saltwater and then you end up pursuing this other or having the opportunity to and obviously enjoying it. And tell me about getting on that team USA and how you found out about it, how you get on that team. Sure. Yeah. I, I actually remember having a phone call with you back during that time. And you oh, yeah. and said, I'm really curious about this stuff. Um, you know, if I come up, can I stay and go through a competition? You show me the ropes and I want to, you know, I want to do it. 
And then I think a couple of weeks later, you said, I, I can't fly up there. Like, I probably I, I had to. two kids at home and yeah, uh, they were like, both yeah, in diapers. I, <laughs> I remember you being curious about it. And at that point, I'd probably only been doing it for a year or so. Um, basically, what happened is uh, that it's been around since the 80s. So forever, Team USA, it's under it's kind of under the same umbrella, um, like a a Olympic sanctioned sports organization that the, you know, the casting, right. Mm -hmm. The rage and all that stuff that's been around forever. Um, and it's, it's a Fips Moosh, which is a SIPS organization and it's, it's, uh, located headquartered in Europe. And basically they, they run the organization. So the, the team USA is sanctioned by them and there's only one team USA, um, that's allowed to go to all these world championships. Uh, under that organization in Europe. Um, and, and it isn't just in Europe either. I, I was year and a half ago, I was in South Africa competing uh, Wow! and that, yeah, it was just an awesome, awesome competition. Um, Oh, one, one other thing about competitions, I, I do like presentations every now and then talk because people are like, Hey, talk about competitions. And, and it's kind of just one of those things that it's, it's, uh, you know, there's so many opinions and, and all that type of stuff. And I just kind of share my opinion. Obviously it's not for everybody. Um, but there's a history I, to do these presentations. I went and studied the histories. I mean, the competitions and fly casting and actually even fly fishing have been going on for a couple, for hundreds of years, a couple hundred years, mm-hmm. especially in England. And, um, and it's not necessarily just something that started 10 years ago, but anyway, back to that, uh, the team USA that was going on, you had some people in that organization, um, trying to think of some of the people that, that would have been there. It was kind of a, a, a gentleman's deal and some of the industry people, like, you know, some of the shop owners and, um, and the people in Jackson uh, realized that there was no representation from the U S so they started a team. And um, do you remember the world championships were in Jackson? I do that remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all of us kind of did some, we did some stuff. Um, I, I guided the Italian team for two weeks and, and uh, um, all that stuff was kind of happening at that time. And Team USA didn't. I, gosh, I can't remember what they did. They may have finished last, and you can't that, you can't do that on your home waters. Like out of, out of all those countries, these tournaments can be big. They can be up to thirty countries, and uh, and I think some of the people got together. I know Jack Dennis was on the board, and um, they got together and said, "Let's let's field a more competitive team." So we need a selection process, and the first selection process was. Uh, whoever we try out has to have tournament experience and has to have won a major tournament hmm. of some kind anywhere. Could be a lake tournament, could be the one five, could be the outdoor games. So I got called. That's very strange because there are very few of those, right? right. Like there are very yeah. few, uh, competition, fly, fly fishing competitions at that point. Totally. Uh, casting. They used a few people. They tried people out that won casting competitions. Uh-huh because there were more casting competitions than fishing competitions. So that's how they did it. And then we kind of had a, uh, like a mini fish off with a few people and, and they took notes and, you know, luckily I was on my, the fish off happened on the South fork, which is, <laughs> like, I know like crazy. So I looked okay. And, uh, next thing I know, I'm going to Spain and I'm on a jet with Jeff Courier next to me and he's trying to teach me the ropes and say, okay, here you go. And I, I've known you forever, but this is a different world you're moving into here these Europeans will take your pants down and hand you, hand you your lunch. And, uh, hmm. you know, as a fishing guide, you sometimes get real comfortable, like, Oh, I'm a pretty good fisherman. And he was trying to set me up and say, look, this is their home turf. They're really talented, skilled anglers. 
Um, it's not just nymphing like you've heard. It's, you know, the majority of these guys are amazing dry fly fishermen. You know, most of these tournaments are won with, with seven X and small dries. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of how I, I got into it. The other thing too, is I remembered my experience with the Italian team. And, uh, this is a great story. I, I was, I think you guided a team too, where you were there in 97. Uh, yeah, I believe yeah. so. Uh, we all got Joe. Remember Joe came in. He's like, you guys are guiding these teams. You're not going to speak very much English. And we were all kind of like, I hey, do uh, remember this. You know, I haven't thought about this in a long time. Yeah. But we I do remember this. Bunk. Like, I think I may have even been you and Alex's roommate at the time. Yeah. I can't remember. Uh, but we were, uh, we were, we were kind of griping about it. Like, ah, I got to be in a boat with these like guys from the other side of the planet that don't speak English. And um, I remember getting in the boat and I was like, whoa. And I, we couldn't speak English. Like it was Italian and that was it. And uh, I, so there's a language barrier there, but I looked and I was like, oh, these guys are fishing seven X and they've got a 10 foot rod. Like nymphing rods really weren't around back then yet. They hadn't, they hadn't been fully, you know, in production um, industry production, but I think they were using like, remember there were 10 foot five weights back then mm -hmm. that people used and, and, uh, but they needed that length to fish three flies. And this, this guy, uh, Paraluigi, who was like the world champion the year before or whatever, um, I just kept my mouth shut and let them do their thing and tried to put them on fish. And at, at one point, I'll never forget this. He had a small woolly bugger on his top dropper and he had two CDC flies and he had a massive, like 18 foot leader that was seven X. I think it might even been level <laughs> and he could cast it beautifully. And we pulled up into a little riffle area like we do. And, and, uh, and I saw him throw this in and start dancing the bug, wood bugger, you know, and it was the front fly. And what he was doing is he was bringing fish in to the other two dries. <laughs> and I was like, I realized it. I was like, cause I was like, Oh, he's got his, uh, he should have the wood bugger on the bottom. Like what's, what's happening here. Um, make a long story short. I have no idea how many fish those, those guys boated. But at, at one point he, he netted three fish on one cast <laughs> and I was like, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I'll never see that again as long as I live. And he did it again, right toward the end of the day. He did it <laughs> twice in one day, two, three fish on one cast on seven X. So, yeah. He was so proficient that he, he netted all three of them really quick. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And and I just, I just was like, okay, there's a whole nother level of angling out there that I don't understand anything about. I thought this was our world and it wasn't, you know? And so at that point I started piecing those things together and saying, that'd be fun to learn about what these people do in different places. And so, you know, I stayed in touch with those guys. I, I'm still friends with, with a lot of those Italian guys and I see them on this other circuit. So oh, that's, so cool. that's kind of how I got onto team USA and I, you know, I got shown the ropes and I had some success with some finishes. Um, and just the, the travel, um, has been one of the greatest things it's, it's meeting people and travel and learning. It's just been so cool. Um, but yeah, I want to make sure and, and talk about how, uh, the team is now it's, it, it evolved into a, a circuit kind of like, um, it's kind of like trying to make the U S ski team, mm -hmm. you know, kids cruise around to different regions and they, they do smaller races and they build points. And then they, they eventually build enough points to make it to a nationals. Um, anybody can go sign up for a small, like kind of local regional 
Um, you know, and, and then you start to learn what to do. There are rules. Like you can't use split shot. You can't use indicators. Um, you have to have continuous line. A lot of these rules are set up for the, to make sure that, that you're good on the resource over in Europe, you know, <laughs> your flies have to be a certain distance apart so that there's no snagging of fish. Um, uh, a lot of these rules are just set up for the conservation of that. And, uh, I might add too, when you said that there's a, uh, um, the competitions you've been a part of have, have given back. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always a, there's always a conservation symposium at all these world championships and they give money back from the, from the entry fees. And, and, uh, so it's highly focused on the resource, mm-hmm. these competitions when they go there. Now, before we go on, it's interesting that they don't allow split shot and they don't allow, um, indicators mm-hmm. because I don't know a lot about, European nymphing, you can call it so many different things. Euro nymphing, Czech nymphing, Polish right. nymphing, um, contact nymphing, uh, what else? Uh, long, long, long rod nymphing, American high Dynamic. sticking, all kinds of things like this. I've heard, I've heard it called so many different things, and yeah. and I'm confused because I missed this whole um, this whole wave, right? I missed it. I, I was not fishing trout as much as I was, and I would just go back out there and do the same thing that we always did, and right. um, but it's interesting because as I'm as I'm learning more about this, the the when when they and this is the same thing that happens in saltwater tournaments, when you don't allow something, mm-hmm. the participants will figure out how to do that same thing better without the indicator, right? right? right. So when you say you cannot use an indicator. Mm-hmm. Um, which for saltwater fishermen out there that don't trout fish, it's basically a bobber that you have on your line. It could be made out of a various, various materials um, of wool to, to an actual bobber that mm-hmm. is the size of a bobber you would use to catch a, a bluegill or a crappie. And people, you know, they, you drift that down. And if it goes under or hesitates or whatever, you set the hook and you usually have a fish or a rock or a stick or something. But something has stopped the line from going down there. Now, with the Euro nymphing, there are no indicators allowed. So what has happened is now you have contact with the fly the whole time and if they're if they were trying to be better on the resource, if they had allowed indicators the whole time, don't you think that people would have just gotten better and better and better at indicator nymphing? And there may not have ever been a, a need to go to this new style or what's well, not a new style now. Um, but. you know, that's a good question. I think that the indicator fishing is was a bigger North American phenomenon mm-hmm. than it was European. They they did a lot of like, you know, the Sawyer nymph and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And uh, they did a lot of sight nymphing and their fish are clear waters, very spooky. Indicators are basically like throwing a medicine ball on top of a fish. Right. Know, like, so then why would they outlaw it if that would seem like a disadvantage? Um, yeah, you're right. It, it could be a disadvantage and you can get around it. You can tie, um, you could tie a Chernobyl ant on mm-hmm. and still indicator fish. We dry dropper all the time. Right. Okay. Um their deal was that they wanted the leaders clean. They always step down. There's space between the flies. And some of it is also um, to make things more technical, okay. you know, like, like it's, it's just to raise the level. Um, it's funny that you say that people eventually figure out that when you, when a rule is placed on you, that you get better. A lot of our younger anglers, when I was there in the early two thousands that were coming in, they were, they were young, amazing anglers, uh, and their best method was indicator fishing. 
they're like, no, I'll always indicator fishing is the best. Like I'll always, you know, and, and when we said, uh, now you got to take the indicator off, it, they struggle, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, how, do, how am I supposed to, um, but eventually you learn, like, you're right. It's so dynamic. You can change the levels with, uh, you, you know, with the indicator, you got to pull it in and, and adjust your level. And, you know, as a guide that we were constantly doing that, um, it, uh, you don't have to do that. And, and suddenly you're like, Oh, I don't want an indicator. I'll mm-hmm. never fish with an indicator. Like I don't even have indicators in my boat anymore. Do you know who was the first non-indicator fisherman I ever saw? Who? Joe Bressler. That oh, guy yeah. never used an box? indicator and he would the use a girdle box. bug and he would yeah. smoke everybody. And then mm-hmm. he went to the one fly and won the one fly. He showed up at the Orvis store. Do you remember the day that he won the one fly? He shows up oh, at the yeah. Orvis store and he's like, I don't have a fly. And he just went over to the bin and picked something out and yeah. said, I'll just use this one. And then he goes and wins the thing. Yeah. Like, and I, I think he also uh, probably did, was too lazy to go get indicators. Right. Well, he didn't even know it, how to use he them. Just, he had yeah. done that since, you know, since he was a kid, that's how he yeah. fished always. They were, there were no such things as indicators when he was right. a kid. So and, he was used to that. Yeah. And he just yeah, and he, did that. He probably thought indicators were a waste of time. I, I remember, remember how Joe would always make us, uh, before I put you out with a client, I'm your client for the day. Yes. He, he did that to both you and me. For hundreds of days. <laughs> yeah. All right. Because he was getting free fish. <laughs> and he didn't right. want to be in the office. As soon as he hired Cynthia, he was like, let's go fishing. Yeah. And I remember going, we're on the snake. And I go, "You, what are you doing? And he was just basically throwing a, a long leader nymph line out there. And he was just letting it go to the bottom and he was dancing it and all sorts of stuff. And he, he was catching these huge, like 16, 17, 18 inch cutthroats that I didn't even know were on like Wilson, the South park. Right. Or, you know, I was like, I was like, what in the world? You're right. That was that, you know, and that, that's another thing too, is the origins of things. People get all hung up on that. Well, that's, you know, my great grandpappy who settled the state of Colorado invented high stick, you know, like the <laughs> bottom line is like hundreds of years, everybody's been doing the same thing. It's just, it just rotates around. There's no, there's no like, really new flies or new techniques. It's all kind of just based on the area and and what they do. Mm-hmm. I'd say Euro nymphing has its own thing because of some of the things like uh bead heads were invented for competitions. Like yeah, because they couldn't because they couldn't use split shot. Exactly. So there's a great example of what I'm talking yeah. about. Because you can't use split shot, there's this innovation of yeah. all new flies. Right. Right. And then they become even more effective than the old flies because the the bead will simulate an air bubble and it can simulate all all kinds of things. Plus it's weight. And then there's different materials of bead heads and everything else. I find that to be super interesting. The same thing happens like in saltwater tournaments where they'll say no chumming. So what is chumming? That's where people will 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 chop up a shrimp and throw it out there and wait and then throw another shrimp out there and the bonefish will smell all that. Well, then that, that if you can't chum and that's the way to fish, then people started doing this booger rig where they would, they would thread pieces of shrimp all the way up the line <laughs> and they would actually have more shrimp out there than they would before. And they'd throw that out there and they were catching bigger bonefish than, and more bonefish. And it was just incredible, but it was because you couldn't chum that someone figured out, well, this isn't chumming, right? This is what the rules say. You say you can do this. Yeah. So you can. And it opened up a whole nother thing. It's, opened it's a it up. little, it's a little ironic that the people who try to set the rules, a lot of times they do, they are trying to 
Hey, we don't want to have that big an impact on this. You know, there's time limits and, you know, uh, like in the Czech Republic, I was just there last week and, uh, they made a big deal. Like, Hey, you guys, um, be easy on the fish, you know, don't skip them in, um, make sure that, that you keep the, the fish in the water the whole time on your way to measure it. Fish has to be in the water the whole time. It was a big deal. Um, so that, that is a lot of times their goal, but you're right. It's funny. I, God, where was I a long time ago? I was with my, my buddy Brett and we were tarpon fishing and he was talking about this tournament in, uh, of a Gasparilla. And he was like, he's like, they're making jigging illegal. And you have to use live bait now because the, <laughs> because the guys are going straight down and just killing it. Like they're jigging these, these, I don't, yeah. I don't know what they were doing. Well, they're, that was, that was a controversial thing. They, they were, uh, you had the jiggers and you had the live baiters and, yeah. and the, the, there were, the live baiters didn't like the jiggers and the jiggers didn't really necessarily mind the live baiters. The live right. baiters would, would drift like we drift a nymph through you know, at the same speed as the current. So the live bait's going nice and easy through there and they would set up way in advance and they would get a drift going and they'd have, you know, a couple rods out and then the jiggers would see the fish roll and they would run in front of them and then they would start jigging and they would mess (laughs) up everything. Right. And so then you, then they would hook fish and, and now these people have to, they had set the drift up. They had spent 30 minutes getting ready to get into the fish. And now, you know, I don't know. It, it, it was just a saying, clash of two styles that did not, they did not mesh in this small little area. And so right. the live baiters are all upset because they, they say that the jig jigging people are snagging the fish, which I'm sure in many situations they, they may have been, but somebody created a, another technique that worked really well. And it was like this yeah. heavy lead with a jig sticking at a right angle off of it. And, you would go over, I mean, I, I didn't fish in this area, but I had been there before and you would mark these giant clouds of tarpon. So if you're just, you know, I would think that if you're, your line's going through them and it, it hooks on their, um, you know, their, their, their mandible that comes off of their, their jaw and you come tight, you're going to hook them underneath the, the jaw. And wow, yeah, I, I don't know, that. that's what people were saying, but still, it still took skill to be that tight to your jig and to do this whole, whole thing. And then they, they catch them real fast. And I don't know, that turned into a mess. And, yeah. and then it's like, okay, now, yes, you have to use live bait because this right. other is too effective. I don't know if that I, I can, I can, um, get behind the too effective rod and reel fishing, right? Like they even say that about Euro nymphing. Like some people yeah. say, Oh, it's too effective. Well, that's the goal of every, style of fishing, right? Like you want to catch a fish on every cast. Um, and if you are able to do that, then it's up to the angler, in my opinion, to say, okay, we've caught enough of those. Let's try a different technique or let's move on. You know, I I always say that to people. I'm like, like you and I have seen on the South Fork, no one, like the rate of catching fish on a riffle on the South Fork is one of the, it's the fastest rate of any (laughs) fish catching I've ever seen, uh, you know, and there are some situations with grayling in Europe that are almost that fast, but that's up to the people that are pounding those fish on that. You're like, Hey, we've caught five really nice, 10 really nice fish. Let's, let's roll off of this riffle. Like that. you're right. It's up to, it's up to you to, to figure that out. And, and, and it's up to the angler to, to make sure and uh, take it easy on the resource. Um, I know that in some places of Europe, I've heard that they actually have signs saying, 
European nymphers to please take it easy on these holes, you know, like, <laughs> like as far as, because you can, you can go in and burn out a whole hole. But for me, I'm, I'm, I, as soon as I start to have any s- sort of success, I switch things. Okay. So like I can't handle it. Let's add, uh, you, you, you're, you're allergic to success. Oh, we've caught a fish. Ooh, gross. I don't, let's stop doing that. I don't, let's change everything. <laughs> no, I um, just want to see if something else will work. So a lot of people that are listening to this, uh, don't know what your European nymphing is. So mm-hmm. can you give a little, a little, um, primer and obviously the, like, as we, as we kind of talked about the history of this, Americans weren't really privy to this technique until team USA starts going over there and right. comes back and is like, dude, you won't believe. And, and like, like your, your, your example of the Italian team, you won't believe what's going on. I didn't have the same uh, experience when I guided those guys, I was like showing them the fish and they were kind of struggling. They weren't great at it. Um, yeah. you saw something that I, I didn't see. I, I certainly didn't see someone. There's different like levels of, of, uh, fishing prowess on the different countries. So yeah. And, and I'm sure and they, yeah, they, they might struggle in certain situations. I know just as an aside, the Italian guys after, after I was like, okay, you guys are pretty dialed at catching all these small fish. Um, let's have some fun. And I just bit their, their leaders in half and put on Chernobyl's hmm. and the, and that's all they wanted to do after that. And they, I, think they, <laughs> I think they won the medal, uh, catching the small fish and the numbers, but they're truly, they, those guys even today tell me like, that was my favorite competition ever because the practice was so fun. We, we used those giant foam flies and caught big fish on the banks. Yeah. See, yeah, there's another, there's another innovation. I had Ed Emery on the podcast and he was talking about when the Chernobyl ant made its way to Jackson because he was doing all the guiding on the, on the green. And that's where mm-hmm. that fly came from. And I don't know if it was, right. it was him and a whole bunch of anglers that, you know, people used to do that all the time. They would fish a little circuit through the West and I'd be like, where you, where were you last week? And they, Oh, we were oh, on yeah. the green and this is what we were using. And I want to put it on here. And you look at it and it's like, no, we're not using that. And somewhere along the line, they just put it on and throw it over there. And it's like, whoa we're using that all day from now on a flip-flop sandal yeah you're like what the heck yeah it worked great but you know it's something that comes from a different place and moves into an area and and just goes crazy you see it in bass fishing you see it in saltwater you see it in fly fishing as well but going back to going back to the, the the european nymphing um we were kind of uh uh, seeing what other people were doing in other places and bringing it to the united states and then it it went crazy. And a lot of people got really, really good at it, yourself included, but just give us a, a very short little, what, what is it and how does it differ from Um, what somebody might know as nymphing? So I didn't know anything about it. In fact, I was kind of like you, I, I think I went whole summers without buying a nymph Mm -hmm. on the South. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like I, I had my, my best summer is like, Oh, I didn't catch a whitefish the whole year (laughs) and I didn't buy a nymph the whole year, you know, like as a guide. Um, so that was my mentality. And I was told like, Hey, to catch these grayling and, and stuff like that, you gotta, you gotta learn how to be a better nympher. You know, there's bumper stickers now that say nymphing's hard, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so basically, um, I, I threw Jack Dennis, he was like, Hey, there's this guy, Vladi that, that basically has revolutionized, um, this form of nymphing, this Polish nymphing. And, uh, there was some, some competition in 198 in the eighties where, he caught more fish than the next three teams combined by himself. <laughs> and, and so he had developed this tight line nymphing, this, this contact nymphing, uh, and he called it Polish nymphing. He was literally fishing mostly underneath the tip of his rod. And um, sure, 
there, there are some differences with high sticking. A lot of people say, well, this is just high sticking. Kind of everything that goes into it, all the gear, the long rods, the lines, um, the techniques, you know, most high stickers back in the seventies aren't using seven X, right? They're using three X mm-hmm. and they're not, and they're using girdle bugs without beads on them. And they're using split shot and they're, you know, like there's a, there's a whole kind of category that this, all this stuff fits together with. And it was kind of, uh, developed in these grayling areas and stuff. And some people say it was because the, the poles, their lines were falling apart. And so they couldn't really cast very far. So they were forced to fish really close to them and into the pods of grayling. And they realized that, Hey, this contact is really important. This is a breakthrough. Um, and so, uh, basically it got started there, Jack, and I can't remember who I went over with. Maybe, maybe one of my teammates, Norm, we went over to Poland to go through Vladi's little boot camp. Like he took us to the Son River and all these places and the Deniats, and and uh, we were t- terrible. Like he would yell at us and almost basically throw rocks at us and stuff, like because we were so bad at it. But after a few weeks of just having this world champion like watch you and go, no, no, you need to lead it faster. You need to do this, and here's how to rig it. And uh, you started to realize this is the cool part this isn't just some technique where I'm like lighting a stick of dynamite, throwing it in there and then netting all the fish. Like once I have a basis for this, I'm fishing again. Like this is fishing. Mm -hmm. Like everybody who knows this technique, we all branch out into our own fishing. You got to decide where you're going to catch the fish. If you're going to lead the flies, uh, dead drift them, whatever, whatever it is, the fly selection. (laughs) So that was one of the first things. And Jeff Courier had uh, was a good friends with Vladi. So he'd been over there before. And that was kind of the, some of the genesis of, of understanding that uh, certainly guys like Jay Buckner, you remember Jay, yeah. um, they, they had, uh, done previous competitions and they were, you know, some of the first guys to start seeing this stuff and going, okay, we need to learn this. I remember Jay saying, you got to focus on this stuff. You got to figure this out or you're going to get your butt kicked. Um, and so that was kind of the genesis of a lot of the, um, of my learning of European nymphing and, you know, uh, I, I did okay in the competitions, but not, not great. You know, the Europeans are, are always going to kick your butt with that stuff on their home water. Um, but the weird part was when I brought it back, like we would, I had my, like, uh, you know, my rod and my rig and I would go over to a hole on the South Fork off, you know, like off the side of an Island. And it would be one cast, one fish, one cast, one fish. And my clients start going, Holy crap. What are you doing? Like it's, it's hot right now. There's no fish up. And you just caught 10 fish on 10 casts. And of course they're like, teach me, like, I want to do this, you know? And so I just started kind of figuring out the European nymphing thing that way. And I was lucky enough to have all these amazing guides, you know, like from Spain and, and, and that type of stuff. And every time you go over there, you learn something new and they, they kind of show you their thing. Like in Czech Republic, we were just over there and our guide, David was, I mean, he's like one of the top 10 anglers in the world. I, in my opinion, I'm just watching him everything's overhang and they're bow and arrow casts. And, and I was just, you know, watching him and I said like, what, what actually are you using? He's like seven, 7.5. Like, wow. Do you think you could go down to seven? He's like, Nope. Now these fish would be able, be, it would change the fishing, you know, just things like that. You're like, really? You have to, you know, he even fish eight, you know, while I was watching him. And, uh, um, so that was kind of the genesis of bringing it back here. And, we're, so we were lucky, right? Uh, those of us that got to go over there and, and learn that style. And uh, if if it hadn't been so successful on all of our rivers and wherever we went, 
probably, you know, I would have just used it for competitions or whatever, but well, we started using it all over the place. And um, there's this weird thing. People, people that I teach how to do this, they don't, they don't understand before they do it, but you're in such close contact with the fish and it's so visual that it's kind of like dry fly fishing 20 feet away. Mm. Everything happens. And when you hit a fish that close, they go nuts. Like right. it's, it's a different type of take. It's like, it sends a bolt of electricity through your body that you don't get from setting from a distance. Um, you're just, you're just on, on with the fish all of a sudden it's in the air. Um, and you were watching the, uh, the, the cider, you know, like we use colored ciders. Well, well let's go through the, let's go through the rig, like, like okay. go through the rig just, just briefly. Okay. So you, uh, the long rod, you can do it with a, with a nine foot rod, but it doesn't work as well because you need the reach and all the angles. Um, so that's why the industry has gone to a lot of the long light rods. So a I long light rod is how long? It's, uh, 10 foot to 11 foot. Okay. And once again, you have rules, right? They, they tell you you can't fish with more than 11 foot rod in competitions. So basically the industry doesn't make anything more than 11 foot rod. Um, the, the lines, you can use a regular fly line and just have a long leader. Um, once again, they've, they've put rules in that say the leaders can't be longer than twice the rod length because people had such long leaders and they're trying to encourage people to use, to use their fly lines more. And with my year on that thing, I, I use the fly line all the time just to shoot it across the, the river and, and that type of thing. But there, there were people like, um, oh, they would, they would just use mono. Mm -hmm. And you've seen that before, especially down like in this southern part of the country, like on the, the White River and stuff like that. There's people that are super effective with that. Well, I think that the rule make, makers wanted more fly line usage. And so they, they shortened the leader uh, maximum. So those leaders, the thinner, the better usually. Because the leader sinks, it has less water resistant, the thinner it is. And so you have a you have a more um you have a you have a better presentation to the fish because uh, a thick leader, like a uh, let's say a nine foot three X or four X, that'd be terrible for European nymphing because it's tapered and it's moving around in the water. The fish can totally tell that that there's you know a human attached to it. So we go level, you know, with our with our stuff um uh, for the most part of the leader. And, you know, like in Czech Republic, I fished mostly six and a half, seven the whole time. Um, and so those nymphs with beads on them can do their thing a little bit better. And so long leaders, uh, bead heads are key for European nymphing. Um, and you'll, you, that's where tungsten has become so popular and all the jig hooks. A lot of people don't realize that, that these jig hooks, the reason that they came in it was for the competitions, your fly turns upside down and you can let it bounce off the bottom and not get hung up on anything because the, because it's a jig hook, it flips over or a grub hook. Um, and so they used to way back before they had the bead heads and stuff, they used to put lead on a, on the rounded part and it would flip over and that makes total sense. And so, uh, I, I remember fishing with uh, jig hooks and all that stuff 10, 15 years ago on the South Fork. I, I probably got hung up 80% less than the other guides mm -hmm. who were just fishing your traditional hooks that hung up on every last thing. Um, so those are, those are types of, uh, uh, aspects of this style. Um, and basically what you do is you, you use your legs a lot. You stay in control. It, it's true. There's shoreline nymphing where you're fishing basically under the tip of your rod, which is what body taught me really effective for grayling and, and, a, and a hole that you let settle back in and the fish come back in because fish do that. You walk in, they, they, 
disperse and then they settle back in and get comfortable. Um, and then in other parts of Europe, you know, like in Spain and Italy and uh, France, the fish are so spooky that you can't get close to them. So those in Czech Republic was, was a little bit like that too. Um, the, basically the, you have to cast a long distance away and, and basically try to short line them at a distance. And so there's two, there's long line and short line. Um, and if, if anybody's uh, curious about this stuff, I, I world cast, they had me do like eight months ago, they had me do a, a podcast on it and you can go to the world cast uh, angler site and, and, you know, yeah, I saw that it was, it's very good. We'll put it in the, in the notes. Yeah. It's probably, I'll probably put people to sleep during it, but um, <laughs> well, you, you know, a lot of this stuff gets technical and I try to keep it beginner to advance, but that it's, that's hard to do. In a nutshell, those are, those are the things that you're doing out there. Um, and the biggest thing that, that I learned was you're in contact with your flies. Mm. Um, at the great outdoor games, uh, I went with, do you, do you remember, uh, there's a guy named Ralph Cutter and then, uh, uh, Andy, um, uh, the guy that, the, at the, uh, that was in the outdoor games, um, uh, Andy. I forget Andy's last name. You, you probably knew him. I don't know. He, I don't think he was there my year. Great fly tire. Um, he was in the outdoor games, like maybe one year or something, but he ended up uh, being my guide and I didn't know the Reno area. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, Basically, they took a camera underneath and said, here's the deal. This is an indicator fisherman. And they had the nymphs and they showed the fish come up and grab the fly and spit it out. And the angler didn't even see the, the indicator move. Hmm. And then you show a European nymph. I think I was the European nymph. I went in there and they're filming it. The fish can't. It's contact. As soon as he touches that fly, it's in him. And that's a huge difference. Is, is, it's not just the light lines and the, um, the fact that you're staying in one uh, food lane. Um, so the presentation is better. It's the contact. You don't miss fish when, when it touches them. Um, whereas fish and you and I know this, when things get tough on the South fork or whatever, they, they mouth it and spit it, you know, they do it before anyone can set and before anyone even knows. That's probably the biggest takeaway that, that I noticed through the years of doing this technique. And, uh, um, I don't know, it's, you know, it's just a fun, technique to add to everything else you now, go out there and and uh it's another uh arrow to your quiver sure it's a different style yeah for sure and you and as a as an angler that's trying to be you know a complete angler you should mm-hmm. know all of them right you mm-hmm. should that's that's part of your responsibility as a great mm-hmm. angler is to know how to do at least prof- be proficient at all of them you may not be the best at any of them but if you should you could you should be proficient at everything for me i want to be able to pick up a bait caster and throw that well enough that i could fish with it all day i want to be able to euro nymph i want to be able to spay cast i want to be able yeah. to throw a, a, a 10 weight to permit you know at the end of the fly line yeah, um, they're, well they're fun deal they're fun yeah, techniques each too. one and it all requires practice let's talk about before we move on tell us about the flies because that's a different thing uh for a lot of people they just nymph with one single fly uh, or a single dry fly. Now, this is basically a three fly rig, right? Uh, usually two. Two fly. Okay, so yeah. so it can, t- it can be three. Each competition is different. On lakes, uh, I fish three flies on the lake in Czech Republic, but um, two. I mean, remember, I even fish one fly because you have small rivers with overhang, and I was bow and arrow casting. So, okay. Um, so yeah, one or two. But on the two rig fly, you got one that's heavier and one that's lighter, right? Right. 
And how do the, how do you adjust, how do you tie those on? Are they which ones where? Uh, basically, you have a tag that hangs off. You know, like from a, a lot of people use barrel knots or uh, or um, hold on, my cat's scratching at the door. He's gonna make a noise. So yeah, you tie off and you leave a tag, and you the bottom one is what we call the point fly. That's heavier and it makes things a little bit easier to control. It's also partly what uh, how your presentation works. Um, those can be kind of attractors, heavier heavier beads, um, and then the the dropper fly, the one above it, is usually more of a natural. And and when the fish are active, they'll come up for it. So, and of course, it's fishing, so you can switch all that stuff around. But that's traditional. Mm-hmm. And if you want, like I, some some people are curious about this stuff, I can. I can send you some pictures of the flies we used in the Czech Republic. Like, yeah, let's do it. We'll put them in this. Them on your site and people will be like, oh, really? That's what you used. Yeah, for yeah. sure. We'll put them in this too. Yeah, send, the, sure. send that stuff along. Uh, it's, sure. it's real interesting because I know that, you know, some people, you know, especially a lot of the people that listen to this like to get out of the, out of Florida. They like to get, um, and, and go and experience different types of fishing and fly fishing for trout is one of them. And so you have a lot of people that are trying to learn new techniques or learn techniques or just, you know, we have a lot of learners that listen to this podcast. So to, to be able to interview someone like yourself, that's been all over the world and learn from all of these different people and then brought it back and, 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 you know, you're preparing with the other people on the team and you're doing that on the South fork and you're doing that on the snake and you're doing it. You, I'm sure that you're trying some weird things on silver Creek. Like oh, yeah. you got to, right? Like those are the kind of, those are your testing grounds. And mm-hmm. if it works, um, you know, in the Czech Republic and it works on silver Creek and it works on the South fork, I think you've probably proven that it works just about anywhere. Um, right. and, and that's really the, that's, that's really what we're trying to get to here of, of just, you know, what, what is this technique and, and why does it work so well? But it, it, what you said is, is very interesting that you're always in contact with it. And, you know, there, there's so many times when, you know, you'll, you'll be with clients or whatever, someone's indicator nymphing and, you know, you're saying set, you're saying set. And they're like, I don't, I don't have anything. And then their buddy comes in there and catches three fish in that same run. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, all those were bites. Like everything that you're getting were bites or it might even be me. And then my son comes through and, and catches, you know, a fish. Wow. You know, I'm I'm sure that today's a good day to fish. It's cloudy. It's overcast. The temperature's right. I'm putting it through this beautiful run and I'm not getting it. I haven't caught anything. Right. Well, doesn't mean that they're not biting your fly. And that's where this can, this can really make a, a, an amazing difference. Um, so, um, how, where, where are you with the competitions now? You spent 10, 10 years doing this and then took a break uh, and then, then you're going back to it or what are you doing? Yeah. You know how cats are. This cat's now <laughs> one out, right? Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> um, yeah, basically so we have a youth team an adult team and a master's team and the master's is 50 and over. Um, when I, I, let's see, I probably put 10 straight, 11 straight years, maybe 10 on the adult team. Um, I was never on a youth team. It, uh, it started, well, actually it, it was going on when I was on the adult team, but age wise, youth team is up to 18. So, um, and then my kids, you know, there, I, I didn't want to take every vacation and travel, but, mm-hmm. you know, twice a year or whatever. 
Um, and sometimes you're in these places for three weeks, four weeks, and because you're trying to learn the rivers and everything. And um, so I took a big break from it and then joined back on the master's team now that my kids are a little bit older um, and started traveling again and getting into it. And it's funny too, because it's all the, it's all the Europeans that I was in the adult team with, you know, they're all mm-hmm. older now and they're all, you know, a lot of them are ex world champions and everything and, and just great relationships. So yeah, I would say I've probably been doing it for the past, what, 20 years and with a, with about a six or seven year, maybe eight year gap in there. So, so at the very beginning, USA puts together a team because we're, we're horrible and we come in mm-hmm. last place on our own. What was the, what, where are we now? Where do we stand in the, in the world rankings or. Um, obviously it's always dependent on the area. Um, but our adult team is, you know, very solidly a top five team now. Um, and it's not uncommon to win a medal. Uh, we haven't pushed through and, you know, we've missed the, the gold medal, um, by a couple of fish, a couple of times, you know, like in Bosnia, just a couple of years ago, got silver. So one of the more respected teams now top, uh, our master's team is a, you know, top three, we finished fourth in the Czech Republic and, um, we finished, uh, second in South Africa. Um, but, uh, so yeah, like the, the fact that we have a, a huge group of people, um, that are into this thing, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Young people, you know, how the industry is trying to get young people to get into mm-hmm. the, to the fly fishing. They gravitate toward this stuff. Um, not just the competitive part of it, but just the techniques and the, um, and you know, just kind of the dynamic, uh, aspect of all of it. Um, they, they, I think that's a, a big thing with the industry. Cause I yeah. know, I know just talking to like perk Perkins and some of those guys back in that, they're like, huh, we really think that this is an area of tactical fly fishing and stuff that the young people like. And we're, we get feedback on that. And so, you know, like echo rods who I design rods for, and, and, uh, a lot of the companies they're, they're pretty supportive of everything. And, and they realize that there's a massive world market out there that competitive angling is a, is a way of life for the Brits. And for, I mean, that that's, it's something that they, that all the companies have been in on uh, around the world. Yeah, for well, think time. about it, how big bass fishing is here and, and competitive yeah. red fishing and the competitive saltwater tournaments, um, huge money, huge, huge, um, participation. And that's something that a lot of those countries don't have. They don't have the competitive bass fishing. They don't have something like a redfish. They don't have the competitive saltwater tournaments like we do for all of the different species. And, and we're so lucky in this country to have, you know, the state of Florida and then all the way up the East right. coast, those tournaments go all the way up to, to Maryland and Maine. And then you have, you know, California, it was a whole different fishery. I mean, we have so much to offer than some of these countries are landlocked. Some of these countries yeah. don't have that opportunity. And so this would be the next best thing. And, and then you have all the rough fishing that those guys are doing over there, which also has to play a part into this, all the carp fishing, all of the, I was just going to say that course fishing is, uh, I call it rough. I call is, it rough fishing, not course yeah, fishing. Almost <laughs> bigger than, uh, it's almost bigger than our bass stuff. You know, uh, the world angling games is not, is where everybody comes together, uh, for a world championship. And they did it in Portugal. Oh, I can't remember when it was, but, uh, Carter was on the, on the, like the sea fishing team, like the deep, the mm-hmm. blue water team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was in the Azores and you'd be shocked. Uh, when we got to the hotel, I was like, Hey, there's Roland Martin. And, and I can't remember who else was on that to Gary Yamamoto and Kevin Van Dam or whoever was there on the U S bass team. Mm-hmm. Scott and, Martin. You know, I think. We, had, we had beers with them and dinner with them and, and hung out and, and, uh, um, 
I don't think Roland remembered, but he, he did an overnight with us uh, and did a show. Um, did he? Down on the South Fork. Yeah. yeah. Man, he's so, he's yeah. awesome. I had him on this podcast. It was one of my best, one of my favorite oh, podcasts nice. I've ever had. He told, he told the whole story about him getting into fishing and oh, it really? was, it was really, it was really one of the best podcasts. And you know what, to his credit, he, um, he went way out of his way to do this podcast. Uh, oh, nice. And, 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 I mean, a couple hours out of his way. He's like, oh, I'm not that far away. I'll just drive over. And he is just super genuine and nice. And I found myself one time uh, doing a Bass Pro Shop seminar, and I had to go to um, two places in the Panhandle and then over to Louisiana to uh, to do this. It was a two, two, two stores in one day, and then there was a store – so it was four stores in a weekend, two stores in one day. So right. started out over here, then we did two, you know, on a Friday, and then two on Saturday, and then Sunday over here. And wow. I ended up riding in the same car, just me and Roland Martin, did that whole tour. And man, he is the nicest guy. He's he is so nice. he is so nice and he has had such an incredible life and just you know, talk about innovations and like the innovations that he did as a bass fisherman were really significant and really, oh, really, uh, advanced the sport of bass fishing forward. But I, I think very highly of him. He's a, he's yeah, a really the, cool the, guy. When you see him on TV, you're like, Oh, he can't be that nice with that infectious smile and stuff. And then when you sit down and, and, uh, you know, have a, a meal or whatever, when we hung out together, um, doubling back on what you said, like, Oh, that, you know, the Europeans don't do this or that. I said, well, you guys are, so you guys just can put pillowcases over your head and win the gold. Right. Cause of the, you know, you guys are big time competitive bass anglers. And, and he was like, no, he's like, these Italians are going to, these, these guys can bass fish over here. Yeah. He's like, sure they, they, can. They, just, they don't speak English. They they're good enough to come over and compete in our tournaments. As you've seen with the Japanese anglers and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. He's like, they just don't live here. And uh, sure enough, I think they got the bronze or something like the Italians beat them and, and uh, they're, and then, you know, of course those guys are awesome. Um, but he was telling me, he's like, don't know. He's like, the Europeans are awesome. Like warm water fishermen. Awesome. He's like, they, they, they don't have like the ESPN coverage and everything on their tournaments, but they're, but they, but they're very big time. Their tournaments, there's a lot of money involved and, um, especially for carp, like you said. So, yeah. um, and I don't know, uh, Carter was telling me that the, that they're pretty big time over there for some of the saltwater stuff. Oh, I'm sure. I'm yeah, sure. and that you know how Europe is—they they get very fired up about like like competing with each different country and national you know type stuff. So, um, but anyway, I, yeah, I learned a lot uh, just seeing some of those different types of groups over there. Um, yeah, and I mean overall, I would have to say I can some of my greatest experiences in my life, especially with things like like food. I remember I was in Portugal and um, I'm there, and and uh, my guide reaches in and and and. and says here check that out and he grabs a chicken foot out of my soup <laughs> oh, at first i was like this is the best soup i've ever had in my life and he's like yeah check it out it's chicken feet too and and, <laughs> and he's like you're supposed to suck the all the fat off of this chicken foot and i was like oh uh, uh you know what i learned to just go with it wherever i was just eat whatever you see like in the czech republic i've always been a tartar fan but some of the other guys were like wait that's so that's raw beef right there in a in a like a pile and we just <laughs> eat it it's like, yeah. So, so have, have you had, uh, have you gotten in trouble like that? Uh, God, I was going to try to avoid talking about that. This deal. <laughs> I got sick this year, oh, but no. it wasn't, 
it wasn't from uh, I, you know us fishing guides we have like steel stomachs because we crappy rotted food all the time on the mm-hmm. river and so i've never really had food poisoning and uh one of my teammates and i i think we stopped at a little deli in the morning and got some potatoes and we both ate them and got sick so it's the only time and i've eaten everything eyeballs and I've, I've never from everything. the water anywhere or anything like that uh i've never gotten sick the courier is terrified of biting his flies off he won't touch the water with his mouth because basically what happens is when you're traveling and as you know you probably traveled fly fishing travel is your body's just not used to the unique bugs in those areas and so uh you can get sick but i've never had bad luck with it i've always been okay but this one time uh, got me, so I, I missed two days of practice. Oh man, I was in bed, so it was not not the greatest thing in the world. But overall, the Czech Republic was uh, the food was awesome, and it was such a it was such a great experience. I learned so much too about um, just how their fish act, and and uh, um, believe it or not, a lot of dry fly fishing, um, not as much as the nymphing, but and uh, you hear a lot about um, like oh they stock fish in those countries because there's you know so many people most almost all my sections that i competed in were wild fish really wild browns wild wild uh grayling you know wild so chubs on this the team usa stuff is mm-hmm. it always for trout and grayling that's usually the main focus trout and grayling yeah um the funny part is is obviously if we're in if we're in south africa we're going to take a day off and go catch yellow fish and so right. you know like we're there you know like hey let's go do this um but yeah, the focus would be on trout and grayling. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, just cause that's this deal, man, it's been awesome to catch up with you. I, I know we probably got to, it's a Sunday. You're doing this on a Sunday. So I, I appreciate yeah. that, but let's, great. let's just to, to wrap it up. Um, what do you think, what would three takeaways be for this, for these 20 years of, of, uh, of world travel com- competition, bringing it back to the home waters. What, what would your three biggest takeaways be? Um, Oh, probably just the biggest one would be how much I didn't know how much I needed to learn, you know, there's my cat. Uh, (laughs) Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's the case in all of life is you, is you realize how much you don't know, you know, and, and that was, that was a big thing. Um, and it was fun. Uh, the relationships, you, once you broaden your horizons and leave North America, it, it really changes you as a person. Um, you start to have different perspectives and, and uh, you, you're just not as locked in on the way you see the world. Um, so that would be the second one. And then, uh, oh, I would, I would probably say the um, overall uh, fun I've had with fishing. You know, a lot of us, with trout fishing, I think you even said this to me once. You, you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Like I remember you said, I'm ready to move on away from trout. Like I need to do something different. Let me know if I'm popping out or no. That's okay. good. We got you now. Um, and and you and I remember going, oh yeah. No, I wasn't ready yet. But um, and you moved on to something different. You know, different types of fish. And I've heard that from other people. Like, hey, I'm done with this fish. I'm moving on to different fish, which is totally natural. Um, I know that like we we fished in such a place with giant wild native fish and stuff that you, that a small fish might seem like, ah, uh, but after being in Europe, my perspective changed. I can go to a, a, a river and be really happy catching 10, 12 inch, you know, fish and the challenge of them. And, and it's, I'm not like, Oh, it's just a small one. It's my perspective changed. So 
that that's probably the final takeaway is that is that you never know uh, what can develop from your perspective if you experience different things. And so um, one other final thing that I didn't talk about was uh, I would say the the another big takeaway was the fact that I got to move into rod design with Tim. Right? Yeah, that's and super I cool. I learned so much about that. And Tim approached me and said, Hey, you know about these things you've seen, you've seen, uh, the rods you've done this. And, uh, and it was just crazy successful. Like people are all, all over the North America are into these and heck we sell these echo nymphing rods, the shadow, we saw them all over the world. In fact, Europe is one of our biggest sellers. So that's super cool. Um, learning, learning about rod design from like, a, you know, a legend like Tim and even Steve, his brother, um, just it was it was amazing experience you know and it never would have happened if i hadn't uh traveled and, and got to see all these different experiences that's super cool i had a similar similar thing you know with with uh a rod company and jim barchi and and working with him and and developing the uh, saltwater rods and you just don't understand what goes into this and you pick right. up a rod and you're like that's a really great rod or you pick up a rod and you're like man i can't throw this thing at all this is terrible and <laughs> and you know it's like well maybe if they'd spent two more weeks you know tweaking that thing it would have been right. the best rod and if they i mean there were so many rods that i don't know like i'd put it one one rod in particular they sent it to me i'm casting and i'm like man i can't put my finger on this but it's just it's just not right and I put the line heavier on it. I'm like, well, it wasn't right at the at the designated line. But perfect. now I put yeah. this one on it and it's perfect. Don't change it. Now let's go back and start designing this other, you know, it was a it was a 10 weight. I mean a, right. an 11 weight. And so, but that perfect that first 11 weight was a perfect 12 weight. And then we went back right. and started designing the 11 weight again. And uh it's just a fun it the power. It's a fun thing. The power and, was off. Yeah. Yeah. And you're yeah, you're that's... learning all of these different intricacies about about this sport that we call fishing. And you know, it, it's what's interesting about it is like you're still that is still just one little part of fishing and fly fish. I mean, you can do the same in bass fishing. You can do the same in carp fishing. You can do the same in saltwater fishing. And even every little species in saltwater fishing has all these nuances. And that's why fishing's like a, a lifetime, it's a lifetime thing. And for me, it's a lifetime learning opportunity. And that's what keeps it fun is like the reason I want to move on from one to another is because, you know, maybe I've hit this plateau and I'm just not learning much anymore. And, and that's, probably my fault and I'm just becoming impatient and it's like I want to learn faster I want to learn more and the quickest and easiest way to do that is to do something different rather than just seek out you know like to learn more maybe it would have been necessary to travel and get into this competition thing like you did and then obviously you're learning from other people all around the world and different countries and different places and yeah there's a there's an amazing learning uh opportunity there or you can move on to another species and try that too. Totally. Yeah, man. Totally. Let's hey, see. What is that? I got to return your book to you. <laughs> 20 years. <laughs> Does it say my name inside of it? it I used to put, I used to put my name in all the books. That's why you don't loan books out right there. That's <laughs> totally. it. Uh, he was helping out a, a first year guide with this. So. I was, I gave that to you and told you to, you should read it. Yeah. Learn, learn your, learn about your resource before you start worrying about the fishing. Well, I learned that from Jay Buckner. He used to come to the, uh, he used to come to the, um, the, the guide school and give us a, a history of Jackson and a history of the rivers yeah. and a history of like 
cowboys and and all kinds of stuff and he was like this is these are the things that you talk about on a bad day these are the things that you talk about on a on a good day these are the things that you just just learn how to talk about and you become a more interesting person to the people that are in in your boat or this becomes a more interesting area or this becomes a more interesting trip it's not all about the fishing and you know that was a big thing about the the magic little area of of where we were where i mean think about like I mean, not that this wasn't going on in other places. Of course, you've got West Yellowstone and, and, sure. and Bozeman, Montana and all these other places that you have, you know, Bob Jacklin and, and all these amazing, amazing, you know, the Henry's Fork and and uh, all, all the people that were over there. But in Jackson, you had Vern and Joe Bressler. Oh, yes. You had Jay Buckner. You had Jack Dennis. Gary. You had Gary. You had... Um, just so many of these kind of outfitter luminary type people that, that show young people like us, like what it means to be a professional guide, somebody like Chris Patterson that was raising a family, you know, and, and it's like, wow, okay. Bill Happersett, who's booked mm-hmm. all the time. And it's yeah. like, Oh man, these guys are taking this like a, this is like a job. This is like a full-time job. Like, and they're like really professional about it. They're not, you know, showing up all hung over every morning, like a bunch of college right. kids. Like this is, right. this is like a real profession. And, yeah. you know, Vern, if you didn't understand that in the beginning, Vern Bressler would beat you over the head with it until you did understand it or you wouldn't be there any longer. And, right. uh, he was, right. he was awesome, man. What a, what an opportunity to learn from him. Was, but man, yeah. it's been awesome catching up with you. I'd love to do this again. Um, but man, congratulations on a great career and a great, a great, um, competitive career, great guiding career. You've just, you've done it, man. You, you, uh, you just immersed yourself and did awesome. It's great it's to great, see. Great great to catch up with you again. Yeah. If you, if, if you come out, definitely come stay with us. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about having my 17 year old son go through the guide school. So I don't know if you, if your son is thinking about going through the guide school, that would be kind of wild. To that would be so cool. I wonder if that's ever school. happened. Um, so my boys are both in Bozeman, Montana. Um, one has graduated college and the other okay. is a, is a junior in college. And my daughter is a freshman at Auburn. So I don't know. I don't think maybe, I mean, who knows? Maybe they will, maybe they should. You let your, you let your daughter go to Auburn. I did. And I your went to family, Alabama. Family yeah, I, I, but I think it was a better choice for her, and um, she she my, is having a good experience there so far. Good. My son uh, just got accepted to Montana State. Oh, really? You think that's yeah. where he's going to go? I think so. Oh, really? Well, have he'll have to. We'll have to hook him up with uh, with my boys. They're uh, they're man. I bought them an old beater high drift boat, and they just nice. go every all the time everywhere. They they they're hunters. They're fishermen. They they. It would be a great hookup for him uh, to cool. meet Hayden, um, and then he can show him how to European nymph. Sure, yeah, Miles does do that. So I'm, I'm trying to tell him, like, hey, let's let's put the European nymphing rods down and get you uh, casting a, a, you know, a double taper, you well, know, out on. The, I'll tell you what, that there. is one thing that my boys can do. They can throw, they can they can throw that line because they learned how right. to fish in oh, salt water, and uh, <laughs> they go out there. I, I, I look down the river. I'm like, oh yeah, there they are. They're the ones throwing 90 feet over there for no reason. Like the fish are under their feet, but they're throwing 90 feet. Um, They're casters. Yeah, they're casters. They're casters. But anyway, man, congratulations on everything, Pete. It's been awesome to to reconnect with you and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Nice. Tell Cynthia hi. I will. I will. All All right. See you.